0: (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Turn it up! Yes, it's the start of another year's Pop Screen, uh, the geek show podcast that covers the good, the bad and the Borgesian of movies either starring about or based on an acid trip relating to pop stars. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for The Geek Show, of course, uh, and Byline Times, uh, and a short filmmaker, and I've recently been making some music videos for the band Amateur Ornithologist that I've been having great fun with. Uh, I'm joined this week by by uh, Rob, um,
0: and also I saw that music video. It was very yeah. good. Not my sort, of, um, not my sort of music. Where to? Um, what's the term? Uh, twee again. <laughs> 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 twey. It, it's it, twey is both. Depends on who you ask. It's like the most sinful thing in the universe, or just something to aim towards. Uh, I
1: think that's, yeah, yeah. that's
0: a diplomatic way of putting it, but I re- yeah, really enjoyed that music video, so yeah, very good work there. Yeah.
1: yeah. Where can people
0: find you, Rob? What do you uh, do? Um. So at the moment, I'm on a, a little bit of a sabbatical because uh, I am the co-host of this podcast, Sister show, Uncut, um, and December was a month all right. Um. which has come off possibly the biggest two-part podcast in the history of two-part podcasts um so yeah took your january off and we'll come back soon with
1: uh robert mitchum so yes that's something to look forward to robert mitchum as a topic of discussion not a special guest all. that would be a big booking
0: it, it it would i mean that's i think that's the one niche of podcasting that doesn't exist sort of <laughs> seances with dead celebrities everything else has been taken
1: (laughs) someone's going to do it someone's going to do it one of these days
0: I mean Robert Mitchum I think he'd have great stories I'll be honest
1: yeah yes
0: being like that in that era of Hollywood I think he'd have great stories
1: definitely (laughs) yeah Hey, speaking of people who have uh, some fairly eyebrow raising stories to tell I didn't realise this when we first planned this episode. But 2024 will mark the 60th anniversary of the first ever Rolling Stones album. And they're still at it? Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: They're like four years old when they started or something.
1: That's (laughs) a ridiculous statistic. It's insane, isn't it? We haven't even passed the first anniversary of the last Rolling Stones album. So... Still making albums as well, that's probably
0: yeah. impressive, yeah. Because when the band gets a lot of vintage, they basically just coast off the sort of um, residuals back catalog. and yeah. back catalogue and also just, you know, be a menace. But actually do music, get out music, and not become like a, uh, what is it, how would you describe it? It's sort of a club singer that Elton John's become, where he yeah, can sort kind of, of make of a... sounds similar to what the songs were. <laughs> <laughs> sort of sounds. <laughs> Make it sound like the lyrics he sang. Like. they still be going there. I mean, what? It must be in the eighties now.
1: Must be, yeah. And it's
0: that's incredible. And and no
1: one else will have done that before them. You know, they started out at a time when it was axiomatic that rock and roll music was for teenagers, and if you were over about twenty six, you had no business doing it. Yeah,
0: pretty boys singing pretty pretty rock songs. But yeah, I mean, before their era, what, sort of 1960s? Yeah, before that, rock and roll music, not really a thing.
1: Just for kids, really, wasn't it? People thought it was a novelty.
0: Yeah, and before that, it was sort of very traditionalist. Mm. A lot of music. Especially in this country. The idea of a a British band doing an American style of music in the 19-whatever, it's...
1: Dread the thought. <sighs> <laughs> yes.
0: Just imagine the jowls <laughs> shaking yeah. in mean, outrage.
1: It lasted too, didn't it? That attitude, like when you listen to a lot of '60s bands, when they do, when they want to do something that's specifically British, like the Kinks did with Village Green Preservation Society, they have to switch to folk. There's still this attitude that's a bit ridiculous to sing about British stuff in, in rock and roll, which I guess is yeah. why Mick Jagger sounds like a cartoon of an American <laughs> man. He, he He's
0: a weird human being now. He really, <laughs> he really, I don't know what he is. He's kind of a national. He doesn't belong to any country. Yeah. He's just sort of this weird gestalt entity that's sort of floating around pop music. <laughs>
1: And people have <laughs> all got a nice... impersonations of. <laughs> it's a nice idea, though, isn't it? Mick Jagger belongs to the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it
0: is a fair point, though, because he is one of about three musicians ever that are so mm. big they're a brand. Yeah. A huge brand. I'd say what Michael Jackson and the Beatles are the other two, really.
1: Yeah, I would say so. You think of that lips logo yeah. and that has just this incredible international presence
0: it really does even if people don't know what it is
1: they'll, they'll recognize that from something i think that's when you've become a legend isn't it when people wear your t-shirts but have no idea what it actually means
0: it's it served the ramones pretty well
1: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and then
0: we're now a fashion brand now um yeah I'm not going to be one of those people that you don't know the music, you're not the real fan, don't wear that t-shirt, because that's ridiculous, <laughs> and there's enough gatekeeping in the world that people enjoy what they enjoy.
1: Yeah, I think it's a bit weird to get angry about a t-shirt. Um, people do. People, people do. People do, it's true, yeah. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's interesting to think that by the time the film that we're discussing today was made... The film today is, I think, the most hardcore movie about a fashion makeover ever made. Um, yes. <laughs> but... It's also
0: the most hardcore example of seeing somebody else do a really popular thing, and a studio saying, "Do as one of them. We want one of them." And yes, the creators doing something which is basically, well, performance. <laughs> I don't know how to yeah.
1: describe it. It's it's a film, all right. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I imagine what you're alluding to there is the fact that Warner Brothers put a, a tranche of money into this under the impression that, you know, the Beatles had done a hard day's night. Now it's time for the Rolling Stones to do their hard day's night. <laughs> and there was a lot of hard and a lot of night, but it was not the same thing at all. Because from memory, um, hard day's night's a pretty, it's a jaunty little
0: movie. Mm-hmm. It's just them sort of knocking about town and being cheeky little scamps, as far as I recall.
1: No, that's absolutely fair. It's a, it's a fast-paced, light comedy. A terrific movie, I think, but oh, yeah, nothing yeah. at all like this.
0: <laughs> I mean, you got to look at the people that are hired for it. Um, I don't know whether mm. Warner Brothers did the research, but this was written by Donald Camell, And mm. um, the cinematography was by a little scamp by the name of Nick Rogue, and together they yes. directed it. If they didn't, do, they just didn't do the due diligence and they didn't do the research into these two weird men. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, f- fair's fair, uh, neither of them had made a movie at this point. The original plan was for Kamel to uh, to direct it and for Rogue to do the cinematography because he'd uh, spent a lot of the 60s shooting very lavish-looking movies for Roger Corman and Francois Truffaut. I think if you can make a Roger Corman movie look lavish, you're good at your job, aren't you? Because
0: he he basically made movies in people's sheds after they were finished.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah.
0: Wherever, whenever, however, with 50 pence, that was the the Corman method.
1: But uh, at this point, Rogue was prepping walkabouts which became his first solo directing credits he said i don't mm-hmm. want to do any more just cinematography i only want to do it if i can direct as well and you ended up with there's that day-to-day sketch isn't there with alan partridge doing the the horse racing and one of the okay. horses is called two-headed sex beast <laughs> i think Nicholas Roy and Donald Camel are the two headed sex beast of directors. Yeah, I
0: mean, that would be a great. If it lasted like a decent amount of time, that would have been an amazing like, team. Too weird so, to
1: live, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I don't know what this movie is. I've seen it twice now. And if you said to me, So, Rob, what performance about. A- Oh, come on, don't do not do that
1: dirty to me, that's a really hard question <laughs> <laughs> I suppose uh, I mean this is one of those things, it's like summarising a David Lynch movie it's obviously going to be totally inadequate but I think like a David Lynch movie the hook of it is pretty expressible, it's about a, a London yeah. gangster called Chaz who is sent to lie low at the manor of a dissolute gone to see the rock star called Turnov, uh, and he finds that as bad as he is and as bad as his associates are Turnov is a level that even he is not prepared to deal with that's yeah. decent i think as a summary
0: yeah yeah i mean it is one of these uh it was
1: a 1970 movie i think but yeah, shot it, in 68, but uh, yeah. well, we'll get on to why it was held back, I'm sure.
0: It has that feeling of a lot of the sort of 1960s British movies that were being made, the sort of free-loving, free-wheeling, sort of experimental, weird things. Like another one that I really, yeah. really like, uh, the director's still working today, amazingly. Um, I can't remember the name of him, Polish director. He did Deep End, he did oh, The Shout, did and he you. did E.O., yeah.
1: Jersey Skomlikovsky, yeah. I'm glad you like, fronted
0: that up and did it in one <laughs> take, so <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs>
1: I've done enough of these Eastern European cinema reviews that the Z key on my keyboard is just worn away to nothing.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a great era of movies and this feels very much of that. I mean, I guess it quite, quite like Czech movies as well, of that SM era. Yeah. That's yeah, undefinable weirdness basic concept but very very not unbasic uh execution
1: yeah i think it's interesting how despite the fact that the movie is completely unique um you can see sort of elements of what other people were trying to get at in their swinging 60s movies like you said um I mean, Camel had scripted a couple of them. One of them has the, the dreadful pun title, The Touchables. Do you see what they did there? Uh, yes. See what they did there? <laughs> uh, he wrote a couple of those and decided that he couldn't be bothered watching other directors like wreck his work again. Uh, So this is the result. But it it is another film, like a lot of films we've done on this podcast, like *Catches If You Can, like Privilege, which is making a very, very dark prediction of Mm. where the the sort of youth culture that it was meant to cash in on is going to end up. That's a very
0: audacious sort of assessment you've you've had of it Mm. because it's just one of these movies where... um, Sort of thematically, it's just really about excess and free loving. Mm. Um, because yeah, I'll ostensibly just to explain what happens if you haven't seen it.
1: Um, it's Edward Fox, isn't it? It's uh, James Fox. Yeah. yeah, same dynasty. Yeah.
0: Who? Uh, I don't know where in the line it is, but his offspring, Syed, or his bloodline, Sayed Lawrence Fox, who is. Just given the world so much joy, he said with like a huge <laughs> like, bit of sarcasm there. But anyway, uh, yeah, he he's a badon in sort of this local, this the, the campest nineteen seventies criminal crime family I think yes. I've ever seen. Like fantastically camp. It's they're not mm. threatening at all. They're like really sort of giddy, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but uh, he gets too close to a job, and he. Gets a little bit violent when he shouldn't. Pulls a gun when he shouldn't. And so he has to go on the mm. run. And he uh, sees this guy in a cafe. I don't know who it was, but he just the, the the thoughts running from my head was that's Gil Scott Heron. That that's Gil Scott Heron. I don't <laughs> know whether it is, but it's just like it's a it's a fart I couldn't shake. Um, and if it was, it makes sense because that probably was
1: the sort of circles that he'd run in. Um, yeah. Drug circles. Let's not put too fine a point on it. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah? It was the 60s. It was the 70s. That yes. was what was at the time.
0: But yeah, through wrangling it, he basically gets to rent a, a basement room, which is mm. amazing. It was, I think, it was, uh, it was in Soho, and it was like 60 quid a week. And I thought, oh, the 60s are so so <laughs> compelling. <laughs> Uh, you could probably
1: put another three or four zeros on that and you'd probably be closer to what you'd have to pay now. I think, uh, while that is true, I think uh, they're taking a bit of artistic licence here because the house in performance was rented from the amazingly named uh, conservative MP Sir Leonard Plug. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. probably <laughs> pro- probably a, a bit of fudging going on in the price there. Yeah. But once in that... Uh, that house.
0: Um, it's kind of weird. I mean, it, it, there's lots of drugs taking. Uh, mm. The the gangster character effectively sort of becomes a woman at one point, and then he becomes like a Mick Jagger light, and then there's there's lots of sex, and then there's baths, and it's just kind of weird. <laughs> And then I don't know. I don't want spoil the ending, but it has this really ambiguous sort of flighty conceptual surreal ending. Yeah. So when you say something like it's a damning indictment of sort of the the youth culture of the time, it's like is it really? I don't know. I still, <laughs> I still don't know what this thing is. I really don't.
1: Yeah, I, I think that is a very fair thing to say that you you get out of it what you put into it. I think. Mm. Camel probably had a, a different kind of agenda in making it than I had in watching it because I think certainly at this point he was a, he was a big believer in all of that like 60s free love and alternative society stuff and you know nowadays it's it's hard to watch it and have a completely um like unjaundiced view of that it's it, at best it's dated. But I think there is still loads of stuff in it that isn't dated. I think mm. the fact that it is so hard to tell, even before we get to terms, it is hard to tell the difference between who is a gangster and who is like a corporate figure. I think that's still very contemporary.
0: Yeah. I mean, the gang, like I said, it's, doesn't feel like a gang. They talk about the business a lot. They yeah. don't really engage in... Uh, Criminal activities, everything except the gangster character. He's the only one who does, seemingly. Um, and it's just the mannerisms as well, when you think of what a gangster would be, these feel more like what a contemporary
1: businessman would. Definitely, yeah. And the big yeah. crowning moment of it, the one where, you know, the identity shifting really becomes the central part of the narrative, is. Something that was probably a big shock to a lot of people in 1970, which is when you see Mick Jagger's Turner with a neat shot back and sides in a business suit. Yeah, it's a it, weird image. Mm. I,
0: I mean, in that segment, that entire segment, I thought really Noel Fielding has based on his, his entire personality of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, which is fine. But yeah, it's... it's uh, It's a weird image. Yeah, because that is a big part of it, the sort of personality shifting between male, female, rock star, gangster, uh, Mm -hmm. drug addict, and it's just... I mean, there's more to it than that, because it's just... It feels like the segments in Fear and Loving in Las Vegas when they've just totally lost their mind and it's just like a maelstrom of drugs and you don't know who's who and what's what. It has that sort of... I wouldn't say sense of danger... But it just doesn't feel dangerous, but it's that sense of unreliability, sense I guess.
1: Yeah. It it's not quite controlled in the way that a film should be, is it? It's like hmm. even without all of the years of myths about what this shoot was like, and there are, you know, decades of myths about it, it's one of the most mythologised British film shoots. But even just by watching it, you would think yeah, some of all this drug-taking and shagging isn't acting, is it? Some of this is just like, we put a camera in Mick Jagger's basement. What happens <laughs> yeah. next will not shock you.
0: Yeah, I mean, the fact that he's got like two live-in girlfriends, and uh, it's,
1: yeah, that's, I'd expect Mick Jagger of the 70s to have that sort of thing. That's... <laughs> that was it, definitely... It was Yeah, that was definitely Camel's addition. Threesomes were his big thing. There's a a wonderful quote about him from uh, one of his friends after he died who said, Donald was the kind of guy who'd fuck the producer's wife and then be genuinely surprised when the film didn't get made.
0: (laughs) I think he was a tragic figure, but I mean, that, that just makes him... Kind of, there's a, <laughs> it's, it's a the funny. Benny
1: Hill side of him, isn't
0: it? Yeah. That we're looking at here. Yeah. Because you look at, he, he ended up. I mean, just to sort of paint what happened to him, he did end up committing suicide because he just could he not did. make any movies, and it completely, yeah. like, killed his soul. So you know, he eventually took his own life. I think beyond yeah. this, he did maybe three
1: more movies. He yeah.
0: did uh, White of the Eye. Demon Seed and something else that's named... Uh,
1: Wild Side, which was uh, the last one.
0: I don't know that one, but not a lot. Not a big uh, filmography, considering he started in 1970 and passed in sort of mid-80s, late-80s.
1: Yeah, he's got a sort of Jonathan Glazer-like work race, except with Jonathan Glazer, you know it's because he like takes his time and only does things he cares about mm-hmm. when... Whereas there's, there's loads of... Um, of unmade Donald Camel scripts out there there's an adaptation he did of Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov which is how, how how do you adapt that but apparently he tried it loads of stuff he did with his friend Marlon Brando that he was like really hopeful that one of them would lure Brando into one of his actual productions but it never happened and mm. yeah it all ended with Wild Side which I re-watched recently I must say that is the only one of his solo works that I've watched. I know you've watched both the others, haven't you? Yeah, Demon
0: Seed is a hell of a
1: movie. Um, mm. That is the one which
0: is sort of proto AI in the sense of like, this is this building that has a computer system that runs our um, proceedings, and that yeah. AI wants to rape and impregnate the woman who lives there. So that's a fun <laughs> afternoon movie.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes,
0: and uh, White of the Eye is probably I know. Isn't it, uh, other people will start to talk about other movies, but as far as American Jello, that is the one mm. for me. I think that's a, a great American Jello.
1: I must watch White of the yeah. Eye someday. Yeah, I think Wild Side. Either Wild Side or Demon Seed tend to be the, <laughs> the ones that are least regarded. But like I say, I've watched the director's cut of Wild Side a couple of times. And I think it's good. I mean, you have to take a bit of a leap of faith with it because it is very sort of pulpy and pawny, But it's gorgeously shot. It has incredible performances, particularly from uh, Anne Hesch and Christopher Walken he knows exactly what he's doing with walk and he's like got his Very, dial yeah. set to maximum walking for the <laughs> whole movie wow peak walking is is something yeah <laughs> <right. laughs> yeah
0: but it, i mean is this one of these movies um i'm not sure of the legacy of it it's it's a potter guy sort of situation is it about who directed and who didn't direct there's lots of mythos around that isn't there about performance
1: yeah it's interesting i'd i'd assumed certainly i assumed before i saw wild side that a lot of it was Roig because it's part of you thinks okay so camel does the sort of crazy sexual excess stuff and Roig does the uh weird time hopping editing because it's nick Roig. that's what he does right hmm. interestingly no And this sort of goes into the whole situation with it being shot in the late 60s and not released until 1970 because the original cut of performance was about two hours long and it didn't feature Jagger until about 45 minutes in, which is not Hmm. a million miles away from what it is now.
0: Yeah,
1: it's quite a bit longer though, yeah. Yeah, Warner Brothers were adamant that, like, they needed to cut down the gangster stuff at the beginning and get to Jagger quicker. And that's where a lot of the sort of non-chronological editing comes from. What seems to have happened is that Roy saw it and thought, that's great, every film should be like that. Uh, and he certainly <laughs> did some amazing stuff with that technique, some stuff that transcends mm. even this, but it was not his idea at first. It was mm. something that Camel and his editor and lifelong friend Frank Mazzello did mm. just to try and get this damn thing moving a bit faster.
0: Because there is a lot of... Um, it happens in Get Carter, we've talked about in, in mm. another podcast. It starts really yeah. enigmatically. Yeah. Like cross-cutting between a sex scene and just sort of domestic general sort of gangstering. And it's, yes. it's quite weird... And I know American, just audiences in general, sorry, not American ones, um, this would still have been weird in 1970. Yeah. It's one of those movies where you think it's weird now, and I don't know how audiences then would have uh, perceived it, but maybe people, and myself included, aren't giving audiences of that time enough credit, really, because we're talking about an era of cinema which is probably the weirdest it's ever been and the most experimental and unpredictable. Whereas now, I think now we're sort of quite conservative in what we do with uh, movies, in every regard, really.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, particularly... I mean, every time this discussion comes out nowadays, it's about sex scenes, and I... I could join in with the Gen Z you don't want to watch sex scenes discourse or I could get a nail gun and shoot it into my balls and that would be more (laughs) enjoyable. But... I mean, on that that point,
0: I mean, what they're against is the unnecessary sex scene. Yeah. So that basically means anything which isn't porn. Which is a very (laughs) reductive way of looking at it because... Yeah. I think the sex scenes in this are completely irrelevant, but the the part of the, sort of the, the atmosphere, the style, uh, the, the, yeah. the, the flavour of the characters.
1: I think what we're getting towards here is something much bigger than just, you know, does the film have too much or too little knobbing, which is what it tends to be regarded as. It. We're talking about, you know, is a film more than its plot? And mm. for a long time, you know, a lot of online criticism, particularly on YouTube, has said, no, you know, the the plot is everything. If a scene doesn't have anything to offer the plot, then it's worthless. Cut it out. And I hate that shit, and I think you hate that shit as well. And I think
0: Yeah, but it's something I hold Ariaster to very high standard because I'm sick of watching his three hour and a half hour long movies. So he <laughs> needs to <laughs> practice that. Everybody else I'll give a fair shout to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sort think, of half-joking there, by the way, half-joking.
1: Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not joking at all. I laughed, but it's a laugh of recognition, like when Michael <laughs> McIntyre remembers something. Um, yeah, oh, dear. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like, I, I completely agree with you that in terms of driving the plot forward, there's only a couple of sex scenes here that matter. Mm-hmm. But in terms of explaining why Chaz, a hardened East End gangster, is freaked out and discombobulated by Turner's world, I think it's all necessary. That If the film isn't totally excessive, you don't understand that character at all. Yeah. It's weird though, because maybe I've been
0: um, diluted from what I've experienced in movies over the years, but he's not that sort of vivacious and sexual,
1: really? Turner or Chaz. Turner. Yeah, and I I suppose that's part of what point he's come to, isn't he? That he's, he's jaded. He's seen everything, he's done everything, and now he's just burned out. I mean, one of the things in performance that I think is really ahead of its time and really interesting is that it has this whole concept in it about the sort of blazing bright young things of the 60s becoming these drug-addled recluses with more money than they can spend and you think oh yeah about six or seven years down the line this is why punk happens
0: Hmm. because the idea is that McJagger's character he had he was a pretty good pop star Hmm. I'm assuming the song that pops up later in this which I think is great yeah uh, is is successful number one um but yeah he basically lives in a london house he's got his girlfriend he's got this french girl and on that it's just really interesting sort of vacuum in time where it's bloody Mm. foreigners i mean the amount of references to things that aren't english it's just this is just so quaint it's it i kind of have a time but also it's kind
1: of funny in that it's kind of out of time (laughs) It's quite funny thinking, you know, this is one of Lovin's Fox's relatives playing this absolute sort of UKIP nightmare of a gangster. <laughs> it's a uh, bit of pre-satire there, I think, satirising uh, that... something before it happened. Uh,
0: it, it's just there, uh, interesting as sort of an icon of a time, really, and I do think, mm. yeah, it's it's a fun little bit of pop history, I think. Yeah. Sort of like recognizing an era before the era is actually recognized itself.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a very good way of putting it. Actually, yeah, yeah.
0: Because this is the sort of era which was creating some of the most whacked out uh, psychedelic music, hmm. and not many of those uh, musicians had long careers. No, really, they all burned hard, lived fast, but. Made some good music while they were at it, just not a lot of it, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless it's like Hawkwind, and then you just sort of lasted forever.
1: For some yeah. I, but some people just do too so much drugs that they become indestructible, don't they? <laughs> That's a thing that happens. Yeah.
0: That's like three quarters of like Rolling Stones and <laughs> yeah. Hawkwind. Yeah. So, so like, held together by just drugs. All of the drugs. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, definitely. Uh, That song, uh, Memo from Turner, uh, it is fantastic, isn't it? And it's it's basically a Mick Jagger solo song. I think the intention was that it was going to be a full band Rolling Stones number, but Keith Richards was going out with Anita Pallenberg, who plays Ferber in this, and he Mm. got... Probably justifiably paranoid about what Mick was doing with his girlfriend in this like basement yeah. flat, making this weird pervy movie. So they <laughs> fell out, and it it ended up being just Jagger on his own. Yeah, I mean it is it is a great uh, sort of psych pop number. Yeah, it's absolutely
0: works perfectly for the movie too.
1: I think it's fun that it happens at the point where Turner has just become this kind of corporate gangster that he's got his his clean cut look and you can't underestimate how shocking it would have been for an audience at the time to see Mick Jagger with short hair, but he's singing this really sort of strutting psychedelic blues number. Mm. I, I think it's like yeah, everything in Turner comes together in that scene. If it hadn't worked, it might have seemed a bit gratuitous. It would have been like, oh, we don't have a third act. We've got Mickey here, haven't we? Yeah, give are <laughs> going to sing. That's what he's going at.
0: It reminded me of so many, uh, maybe, Nikatsu movies in Japan.
1: Mm-hmm. Where,
0: in the 60s, like studio movies. I mean, Japan aren't uh, subtle about their intentions for a certain movie. I've seen yeah. so many movies. It has sort of like a, a particular actor who's also a musician, and they will stop the movie constantly yeah. just so he can sing a song.
1: <laughs> and it's, yes.
0: it's not something that really translated over here because the musicals more popular over here than it is over there. But still, it it feels odd. It feels out of place in a British movie. If this was Japanese, I'd say, yeah, this is absolutely what I'd expect to see. But I don't really know any other Japanese, in a British movie, sorry, that does this sort of thing. That's a it's,
1: good point. Actually, is the I wouldn't have thought of this if you hadn't raised like sixties Japanese movies. But is this the nearest British equivalent to a Seijun Suzuki gangster movie? I yeah, wonder. absolutely. I mean, that's
0: I think that's why I, I really like it because Seijun Suzuki, his movies don't make sense. They're pretty straightforward, mm-hmm. but they don't make sense, and they're hugely flamboyant, and that's how you could describe this. Uh, I and mean, instead of some yep. sort of popular sort of bluesy folk singer, you have Mick. Well, you could say Mick Jagger too, but
1: mm. yeah,
0: it, it's it is a
1: Japanese Seijun Suzuki movie performance. I think that's the perfect summation of it. I want to go back a bit to the Warner Brothers response to it, partly because it's hilarious. Uh, they realised that the test screening was going badly when one of the Warner Brothers executives' wife vomited um <laughs> which is not great uh, uh. <laughs> but even when they cut it down and tried to sort of remove as much of the gangster stuff as they could it still had this reputation as being a violent movie there's an amazing uh underground press clipping in this Wonderful book. I have Donald Camel, Life on the Wild Side by Rebecca and Sam Omland uh, from an underground paper called It, which I've never heard of in my life. Um, it says, Jagger's sadist movie finally released and advises people, <laughs> a heavy, evil film. Don't see it on acid. Uh. Well, I'd say that about
0: any movie, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's. 'Cause isn't that the drug that has uh, the reputation of it makes everything wild, but in reality it's just like you're staring at a table leg like, and you think, Oh wow, that's a really weird table leg, like, I wonder <laughs> yeah. how it works. And you just come really anal and fixated on things, so Yeah. <laughs> yes. it's... But that's a weird thing. Sadist movie, I would Sadist movie. Even in nineteen seventy, even in British cinema in nineteen seventy, there was much worse than this. I, I mean, think you're a couple
1: of years away from straw dogs here.
0: I think maybe the one scene that sort of clinched it is the one where um, Chaz is effectively attacked and bound, and there's just all oh, the blood all over the wall. Because mm. before that, cinematic violence was kind of a bit. I've stabbed you, irk, I'm going to do some dramatic acting and fall over. The stuff that was so yeah. brilliantly satirised and breathless. Yeah, yeah. But I think, as far as I can recall anyway, I don't recall anything before this that really had that level of claret. I mean, it literally is just pained. But still, I can't recall anything else that had that level of quote-unquote gar. you know. It's
1: interesting this, isn't it? Because... The the scene that I found surprisingly hard hitting is a scene that has no actual violence in it at all. But it's at the start where they've got um, they've, they've got someone who they've been ordered to like soften up a bit to send a message to, and Chaz is, is just shaving this guy's head and they yeah, pour yeah. like this caustic solution onto his car, and it's like. Well, this isn't violence. No one's getting hurt, but it's it's kind of heavy in its own way. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's.
0: I think it's because of something physically act- happened to the actor. Mm, I don't no. know any many movies where the like the a scene requires them to be shaved and like, handcuffed to a car. It's yeah, because the actor still has to sort of go through
1: that. It's, it's, yeah, it's real hair. You know, it's it might not be drawing blood, but it's definitely their hair. Hmm.
0: And I don't know about anybody else, but I wouldn't want my hair forcibly shaved on a film set. No. <laughs> it's a pretty traumatic incident, honestly.
1: I guess it's kind of the sort of weird... It's the fact that he's got the straight razor out and you know that he could do something else with the straight razor, but he's just like thoroughly shaving the guy's head. Apparently he was inspired by a friend of Camel's called, I think it was David Litvinov, who got on the wrong side of the Cray twins Mm. uh, and he was forcibly shaved and dangled upside down over a CND match, which (laughs) I think (laughs) is at this remove... Now that I know I'm in no danger of the Kray twins doing that to me, I think it's sort of funny.
0: Well, yeah, it's also a message received. If if somebody could do anything in the world to you, they could kill you anywhere to Sunday. But instead, they just shave you. It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a message that they're, they're they're serious. They could do anything, and they decided they give me a haircut. they they're, yeah. they're throwing their weight around in very insidious ways. So, yeah, no, I get
1: definitely. That. I yeah. get
0: that too. But even then, even with those two scenes, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like when you watch a movie, it's controversial from a different era and the standards have just been contorted so far mm. in the modern day that you call it a violent film. A violent film now is tends to have to be quite grotesque,
1: mm. yeah.
0: incredibly grotesque. Uh, lots of gore effects, lots of blood, lots of suggestion, lots of sound design. But in the nineteen sixties and seventies, like I said, there's a lot of violence was just I've been shot. Uh, I'm going to throw myself out of a window in a yeah. dramatic fashion. Any sort of suggestion or any sort of red, and it's this is sick filth. Ban this sick filth. <laughs> and having sort of nuns like. Uh, <laughs> protesting outside of a, a cinema chain, and that's what the time ta- the sign of the times back then. Um, because as yeah. a, I've talked to my dad about it, and all of the talk about Exorcist was real, and that just blows my mind that a movie could get yes. that sort of bad reception. It just absolutely blows my mind.
1: It's but when you look at it now, and that like will so, never happen again.
0: Somebody saw everybody's so apathetic about extreme violence, but it, it's kind of mm. weird the picture of time before that. Yeah. At least it is for me anyway, I don't know about yourself, but yeah.
1: No, I think it is, it's like, I like I cannot imagine a movie getting the response that something like The Exorcist or even punting it forward a bit, stuff like Last Temptation of Christ or Natural Born Killers or Crash, you know, that that feels like, a, I don't know, it yeah. feels like I'm tempting fate to say this, but it feels like a, a lost yeah. era.
0: I mean, Brandon Cronenberg will try it, but it just comes across as an edgelord trying too hard. But uh, (laughs) that's just my opinion. It's a controversial one, but it's my opinion.
1: (laughs) Maybe that's the thing. Maybe now, if, if I see something that's really trying to be offensive, rather than thinking, wow, the guy who made this must be an extreme evil psychopath, you think wow, the guy who made this must have an account on 4chan.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because that's uh, Tom Six, isn't it? Oh,
1: yeah, Tom Six is a great example. Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: He is the sort of... When you say ban this sadist sick filth, you think, oh, it must be like Tom Six. He was really trying to poke... Apparently he was being satirical of those movies and trying to poke the bear, apparently. He was,
1: yeah, of course.
0: Yeah. But to see it. I mean, it's not a harmless movie performance by any means, but it's just when the goalposts change so much, it's hard to, to empathise with that sort of that thinking.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's like you have to sort yeah, I, uh, I have a time machine,
1: really. to. I didn't it. watch it thinking that it was sick filth that should be banned, but it does. I could appreciate that it went hard, as they say.
0: Especially for a 1970 movie.
1: Definitely, yeah. Yeah. Fun, though? Fun. Lots of fun. Um, And I think just that idea of dealing with the studio's boredom at the first half by making it into this trippy... Asynchronic kind of experiment. I mean, there, there are loads of references to avant garde novelists in this, which Rob, I'm sure you'll have picked up on. Not uh, uh, all and, of them. <laughs> yeah, <I'll enjoy laughs> but yeah, um, there's a reference in the lyrics to Memo from Turner to William Burroughs' novel The Soft Machine, Furber's doctor that she gets her medication from is called Dr. Burroughs, because of course he is. There's wow. a load of stuff about Jorge Luis Borges, who is my favourite author of all time, and I mean, we're so rarely going to get the opportunity to discuss Borges on this podcast. I feel like not many jukebox yeah. musicals are made based on <laughs> Argentinian magic realist works. It's a niche, though. Someone should. I mean, there's a third Mamma Mia coming out, so oh, the opportunity's really? there. Oh,
0: I mean, I am so I don't really care about either one way or the other, but those movies made me hate either. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but they <I> really
1: did. <sighs> yeah. I, I, I had the same thing feeling. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's just such a
0: dense movie, this. Yeah. Um, hmm. And I think that's what's enjoyable about it. I mean, it felt like such a unique movie the second time I'm watching it. It didn't feel like the same one. The first time, it felt like there was more Mick Jagger. It felt like Mick Jagger sort of dominated the movie.
1: Yeah.
0: But second time, he's barely in it, really. I mean, I think the best part are when he's in it. Not that he's a great actor, he just has that sort of... the Pam Greer's effect, where she's not a great actor, but there's just... Obvious magnetism, right? Magnetism and charisma. It's very identifiable in him. Definitely. He's an awful actor, at least at this point in his life. Let's be fair. But he's very charismatic.
1: I haven't seen any of his his later um, acting works. We'll be pairing this on the Patreon. This is a good point to get this in. uh, With Aidan and I discussing his role in Tony Richardson's Ned Kelly, which... That's shock. Wow. <laughs> that that's a thing that exists. Yeah, did you not know about that?
0: No. <laughs> I couldn't picture
1: that. That's that's wild. It's I mean, I hate to spoil the podcast, but it's not a good movie. I think it was uh, yeah. it was made after this but released before because of, as I said, that endless sort of back and forth with Warner Brothers. But um yeah, I, I do think he is He is very, very good in this and I don't know whether that's a one-off, whether it's just this beautiful collision of actor and directors and subject matter that made something magical happen or whether there is actually something untapped in him. But... Hmm. Yeah. I
0: mean, I barely talked about the music, really.
1: Mm, That's true. And there's a lot of very different music in it isn't it it's not the sort of Rolling Stones jukebox movie that people might Mm -hmm. expect or Uh, Warner Brothers might expect for that matter.
0: It's very symbolic of that era of the musicians who were very popular in the 60s and sort of when they first got a few things under their belt and they start like listening to music which is made by Indian mystics and Mm. all this sort of thing and it Lots of Europe, like odd instrumentation in the incidental score.
1: Lots which... of very early electronic stuff in the incidental music, which is, and, I mean, I'm struggling era. to, th- yeah. Like
0: 1970, um electronic music isn't that old, really. No, no. I mean, I learned about the sort of the the originator, who is a fascinating woman who needs a movie made about her, because she's just amazing, an amazing individual. I can't remember the name of her, but she what was told it? off, that you're not you're supposed to use those machines like that, that's not what they're supposed to do, and they accused her of witchcraft and
1: satanism. I can't remember Oh, the name. Delia Derbyshire. Yeah. Was it Delia Derbyshire? That's De- what was that trying she- to think of. She was accused of making a sound wave that could kill someone. Falsely, (laughs) I might add. I want a clear name. I mean, she probably could have if she set her mind to
0: it. But no. I mean, so the idea of electronic music in in any sort of movie that was made in 1968, that was very, very progressive
1: you would had it in things like Forbidden Planet, but there it's obviously meant as like, oh, the movie's set in the future, we're having music of the future, I think to do it yeah. to do it in a movie just because you thought, this is good, this is right for the movie, is incredibly groundbreaking.
0: It is, yeah, and something that wouldn't really be picked up on for decades and decades. Not it's like really. The sort of the fluidity of gender as well, I mean, it's very of its time and incredibly ahead of its time, in other words.
1: I was, all through that Rebecca and Sam Omland book, I was wondering about Donald Camel's sexuality. I think you can't help but wonder about Donald Camel's sexuality when you watch something like this. And I think the vibe I get from him is that he was straight, but he probably felt like he should have been bisexual. Like, that would be the right kind of bohemian, edgy thing for him to be, but just wasn't yeah. wired that way, I guess.
0: Given what you said, he feels very sort of cradle of civilization, grace, really, mm. where it just anything goes. He gives yes. that sort of feeling about him.
1: But, eh. Yeah. No, I- I'm really glad to revisit this, and I'm really glad you enjoyed it, because it's, uh, it- it's a sort of movie that is... You can only make something like this once. I'm sure other people have tried to do performance knockoffs and I'm equally sure that I can't name any of them because there is only one performance.
0: Yeah. I mean there was lots of British cinema in that era was kind of like regional American horror in the seventies through late eighties. It's just there's so much was produced and there's so much out there that I imagine it'd keep mm. Nicholas winden reference streaming platform in business for like decades to come, <laughs> if he so chose. Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: And by that I mean it's a lot of crap. <laughs> There's <laughs> a lot of crap out there, I imagine. Which is justifiably forgotten.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Yes. Um, and if you want us to to hear us talking about some of that crap, I like I say, there's a Patreon episode about Ned Kelly on the way tomorrow. <laughs> um, I'm finalising the February stuff. I think there's some uh, fun stuff for February. But if you want to know exactly what's going on, uh, the Geek Show Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Geek Show has a monthly newsletter where we announce all these things first, as well as. Uh, doing a lot of our other stuff, we do written TV reviews, uh, Alex and I are both working through variously Red Dwarf, The X-Files, Doctor Who, um, Rob, would you like to introduce people to some of the exclusive podcasts that they can't get anywhere
0: else? Oh yes, but before that there's also uh, Unseen Asia, which, oh, Fantastic Asia, which I should say, and uh, this month it's my turn and I forget the name because it was one of these movies I was trying to catch up with in 2023, but it wasn't released in 2023 because schedules, really schedules are garbage. So, <laughs> yeah, there's that. But as well as that, there's uh, two podcasts. There's uh, Last Night, which is the monthly podcast where we talk about the sort of things that we've been watching the past month. We had an interesting Christmas special, which was uh, put out for free yes. um, as part yeah. of that. And uh, the other one, which is having a little... In, uh, Inter mini series break um, from the video aisle, uncover from the video aisle, in which we look at my marginalized horror series from beginning to end. Um, just finished VHS, and um, just about to do Mr. Vampire, which is a very, oh. very big change of direction.
1: Yes! Wow! Oh, I'm very excited by that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and it also won't take like seven hours to record an episode because we don't have to talk about about six short movies at a time. (laughs) It's just weird Chinese uh, hopping vampire movies. What more could you ask for? Yeah, look it up if you don't know what a hopping vampire is, by the way, because they are just a fun idea that I would love to see more of. (laughs) Hmm.
1: Yes. But, uh, like I say, if you've subscribed to our Patreon, we'll be back tomorrow. If not, we'll be back in a fortnight's time with more pop screen. But until then, I've been Graham. And I have been Rob. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. <laughs>